Chapter 9 Rise and Fall 161-103 BCE There is a great deal of ruin in a nation. Adam Smith For a glorious, albeit extended moment, it seemed as if the Vijayad good times had returned. Due to Gamanu's nature, Claire from his earliest childhood was naturally geared to dominate, take control and direct. Not for nothing does the island history remember him as the Great. Certainly his victory in 161 BCE left him ruling nearly the whole of the island, more territory by far than even that of the great king Pandukabaya. And as if to confirm the return of a Jain order, the construction of more buildings commenced. Anurandapura expanded exponentially, its infrastructure, utilities, water resources so upgraded as to ensure that it would flourish for centuries to come, the longest surviving capital city of the Indian subcontinent. Still more spectacular was the building of many of its most celebrated structures. A large monastery, the Mari Kavati, was erected, together with a nine-storey chapter house for monks, with a bright copper-tiled roof, and most famous of all, what is today called the Ruan Wilsia, the Great Stupa, which housed Buddha's baking bowl. The building programme was not restricted to the capital alone. Eighty-nine other temples are said to have been constructed, along with hospitals and smaller tanks. Trade opened up with the West, the ports busy with merchants from Arabia, Persia and possibly even Rome. But back at the palace, events were going less smoothly. Due to Germanu's heir, Salia had fallen for a girl from one of the lowest castes and was disinherited. The ailing king, dying before his eye-catching stupor was finished, ensured the throne passed instead to his own brother, Sadhu Tissa, in 137 BCE. For the next 33 years, it seemed as if life had got back to normal, or to whatever passed for normal amidst the seemingly indestructible buildings and gardens of Anandarapura. King Sadhu Tissa busied himself building the obligatory new monasteries and, more usefully, a tremendous water tank, the Dura Tissa Reservoir, which held 336 million cubic feet of water. But as the late British Prime Minister Harold Macmillan remarked on the unpredictability of politics, the sudden appearance of events, dear boy, events, was to unseat everything. Sadhu Tissa's death 18 years later, in 119 BCE, set off a power struggle with his son, Thulatana, taking the throne, though not for long. It also fired the gun to start the dynasty's race towards its next great disaster, just 15 years later. Thulatana's coronation was a crowning too soon. He was not, in all probability, the next legitimate heir, that honour going to his older brother, Langetissa. But Langetissa was busy far south of Ranandarapura in Ruhana and not on site to determine the right order of succession. Inevitably, war broke out, albeit briefly. Thulantana was defeated and killed, and for the rest of 119 BCE all the way through to 109 BCE, Langetissa ruled the kingdom with, no doubt, much justified satisfaction. His death, ten years later, brought his brother, another son of King Sadutissa, to the throne, Kalatanaga. Kalatanaga's inheritance 
was much impoverished by the events of the past years. Something was broken within the kingdom, some abiding sense of order and law. The palace coup and murder around King Tulantana had shunted the state back to how it had been in 205 BCE, when the luckless King Aesla was killed, having been unable to repair the damage reaped upon the kingdom by his more careless ruler ancestors. And just now, it was all too depressingly similar. Dynastic self-harm had normalised treason, regicide and rebellion. The state was unstable and ungovernable. Inevitably, therefore, Kalanatanaga found himself busy quelling rebellions, but to no avail. Killed by his own chief general in 103 BCE, another messy power struggle broke out before Valangama, yet another son of King Sadutissa, took the throne in 103 BCE by killing the general and, in an act of reckless trust, adopted the general's son and married his wife. Thank you.